Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, you've heard these special words from your sacred word. Father, may those words sink deeply into our hearts and our being this day. Amen. The verses that we're going to cover in the services are up. I'm hearing a big echo. Up here are the services, are the, excuse me, the scripture that we're going to cover. The one on the end, Jesus wept. How about that one? A good friend of mine, we had a conversation. And we're half joking, let's do Jesus wept. <clears throat> Remember as a kid, we used to laugh about that one. Memorize that one real easy when we had to memorize scripture as a kid. Jesus wept, we got it. Not too hard. I am looking forward to preaching on that passage. That passage is enormously significant. If you take it a step larger, the idea of God weeping, Jesus weeping and God weeping, there are theological schools that say God can't weep. He can't even be moved upon by human activity. So the idea of God weeping and the idea of Jesus weeping, I think is very enormously significant because all throughout the Old Testament we see God literally weeping over his love and desire for his people. So I look forward to that one. It's not just thrown on there at the end in some sort of joke. It's very, very significant. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, based upon the mercy of God, to present your bodies, your life, as a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual or your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind or your heart, that you might know what is the good and perfect will of God. That, I think, is one of the most significant passages in all of the Bible lodged within what I think is the most significant book of the New Testament, which is the book of Romans. This verse highlights the importance of commitment and the importance of transformation. I want you to think about that as for a few moments we look at this passage. This book has been significant for many people throughout history. One of the great theologians, Augustine, in, the early, in his life, he lived a very, very pagan lifestyle if you read his biography. But he came to faith by reading a portion of the book of Romans. We think of Martin Luther and his experience, and you realize how significant the book of Romans was to him as he wrestled so hard with trying to please God by his actions and his behavior. And he came to this unbelievable affirmation of justification by faith that is rooted in our very faith in Christ and what he's done for us. C.S. Lewis, as he unpacks the book of mere Christianity at the beginning of his book, he, he turns to Romans and talks about the human condition and the remedy for the human condition is found in Christianity and the powerful gospel. Unnamed person, I don't know his name, but he commented on the book of Romans, there is a unique quality impacting Christians throughout history and this book continues to impact us. From studying Paul's letters in Romans, we can learn the content of the Christian faith like nowhere else in the New Testament. I can't tell you how exciting it was these weeks as I prepare not only for this message, but also for our book club. I'm in part of a book club, and we decided, let's, let's look at a biblical book. And we're going to be looking at the book of Romans. And actually, the book of Romans, if you read it, is exhilarating. I encourage you to do it this week. It is absolutely exhilarating. I can't tell you how significant it is to read the book of Romans and see the powerful message of what God has done through us through Christ. Before we get to the specific path, let's take the broader view here. When I was in college, one of the two books that were linked together were often Genesis and Romans. You took them together as a class because they are so inseparably linked together. 
They both complement each other and describe the big picture. Romans parallels Genesis in many, many parts of the book. Romans gives a solution to the human dilemma as it unfolds also in the book of Romans, in Genesis. And Romans describes the fulfillment of the promised one who will bring salvation and deliverance that was predicted in Genesis. You find creation described in both books. Obviously in Genesis, the magnificent creation. You see Paul talking about the, the creation. God shows His glory through creation. You also see the essence of human choice. In the garden, you see the tree of the knowledge of good and even, evil that's central to the garden, which is central to human choice and human decisions and the implications. And the Apostle Paul also talks about the choice that we have to make, either to move towards God and we live by faith by faith, or we move away from Him. And the consequences are devastating to move away from God, for we see that God releases His presence in the lives of people who choose to walk away from Him. We also see the predicament of people who are steeped in sin in Genesis chapter 3 through 11. And the reality of sin is seen in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And then, of course, the powerful prediction of the deliverer, chapter 3 of Genesis, in the very great promise of the Abrahamic covenant given to Abraham, the reality of a deliverer who would come. Alongside these wonderful parallels of the book of Genesis, the book of Romans specifically quotes the Old Testament 74 times, folks. I want you to think about that. 74 times in the, old, in the book of Romans quotes the Old Testament. The flow of the whole book is rooted in the Old Testament. All the major arguments of the book of Romans are substantiated by the Old Testament. They preach the love and grace, folks, directly from the Old Testament. The flow of Romans is a masterful written letter of the Apostle Paul. His primary intention is to bring two warring groups together, the Jews and the Gentiles together, these warring factions in life, and bringing them together. And the whole book weaves so masterfully. At times, he challenges the, the, the Jews. He challenges the Gentiles. He, he gives hope and grace to the Jews. And he gives grace to the Gentiles. And he weaves this together. But these groups are warring factions at the time of the Apostle Paul. We could use an analogy today. I'm quite disturbed by the political parties of today. The, 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 the warring, the hostility that exists. We can differ on policy, but we can't degrade people. And I see such a degrading of people. And it's so devastating. And so I, that gives us a little bit of a feel. We feel the intensity of that every day of our lives as our inability to speak kindly to each other. And this is kind of what is the intensity in the feel of the Jews and the Gentiles that were at a boiling point during the time of the Apostle Paul. The sin condition is, is explained as we begin the book. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is the, is the key verse in a section that, that lays the axe that every human being, the whole human family, finds themselves alienated and separated from God because of sin. All, all human beings have sinned and we follow, fall short of God's expectation. It's one of the first verses I memorized as a child. He goes on then to talk about the wages of sin, which brings death, physical and spiritual death to all of us. And we all find ourselves disconnected and alienated from God. But even though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The powerful message of this free gift given by God that gives us eternal life, which is the life, the quality of life we live now and for all time. 
And we recognize our sinfulness and we recognize the need of repentance and we receive the unbelievable gift. The inability of us by our own actions, by our own personhood to save ourselves and we thrust ourselves on the mercy and grace of God as the Old Testament personage of Abraham and David did. But the powerful message in chapter 5, therefore since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize, folks, if you know Jesus personally, you have peace with God. We might choose to walk away from Him at times in our lives, but the position we hold with Him is peace. There is no condemnation in chapter 8 to those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation is not heaped on us by God. We heap it on ourselves or others. No condemnation because we are reconnected to God through Christ. And he goes on in the, in the middle section of this book to talk about the transformation and the growth process. Because we have and are becoming transformed in the image of Christ, what does this new creation look like? And he highlights in chapter 7, in the midst of this new creation, there still is a struggle that goes on in this journey of faith. In verses nine, chapter 9-11, through 11, he gives us the big picture. These two groups, how he first chose Israel to be a light to the world and they failed miserably and he moved the Gentiles into center stage and then he brings them all together into this one body, the church. And they both belong together. And at that point then he turns his attention to the Scripture of today. This powerful Scripture. The high point of the book because at this point he calls them into commitment. I beseech you, it's, it's, it's somewhere between a command and just suggesting. I beseech you, brothers and sisters, all people, based upon what? The mercy of God. Eleven chapters have been unfolded about the mercy of God. The argumentation of the whole letter is God has been merciful. It is undeserved, His grace in our lives. Everything that we do needs to flow from His mercy and His grace. I beseech you by the mercies of God to what? To simply give your life to Him. Because He gave His life to us in Christ, He simply says, give your life to Me. It's not a, a burnt offering in the Old Testament that's all offered up to God. It's now the offering of our lives. Every part of our lives. Worship is every part of our lives. He desires us. And this is reasonable based upon His mercy. It's a spiritual act that we ought to do. As a result of making a decision of that commitment, then he moves towards transformation. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is a world system. All the kingdoms of the world that are opposite of the kingdom of God are part of the world system. In a practical sense, God has sublet to Satan himself some ownership or oversight of the kingdoms of the world. And folks, sometimes as, as believers we get sidetracked and we don't realize that the ultimate reform and the ultimate change of human beings is spiritual transformation. You don't change society just political and social movements, however good they may be. At the core of it is spiritual transformation. In Jesus' words, He says, the kingdom of God, go into the world, and the primary purpose is to make disciples, followers of Jesus. Bound together in community and influencing the other kingdom for good and the care for human dignity. So what does this, re this renewed mind look like? What does this look like that we think and we act differently? It flows from God's mercy. 
It applies to the other, the kingdom of God. It applies to the kingdoms of this world. It applies to our interpersonal relationships. A way of seeing people, a way, a way we act. I encourage you to read chapter 12 through 15 this week. You really want to get a sense of what it means to really have this transformed mind and heart. Read them. I'm just going to lift up two. First one is humbly serving others. The whole focus of chapter 12 after the commitment is to serve others. You think more highly of yourself than you ought to as pride. Well, being wise in your own estimation. It's kind of the Babel experience in Genesis where we think somehow that we can make a name for ourselves and destroy the kind of relationship that we have with God. We find our dignity in creation and we find our place under God's care and authority and therefore that moves us to humility. Use your gifts, folks, in service to others. C.S. Lewis in one of his letters states, to the poor man who knocked the door, to the ailing mother, to the young man who seeks my advice, the Lord Himself is present, therefore let us wash His feet. And Jesus says, if you save your life, you'll lose it. If it's all about you, it's all about us, you'll lose it. You give it up to me and you will find it in abundance. Serving others' needs, giving preference to each other in honor. Do not be haughty or proud, so proud that you don't associate with the lowly, which was happening. The deep concern God has for the lowly, don't be haughty. And Jesus, of course, is an example. And the attitude of Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death for you and I. He also goes into this chapter to talk about what it means to genuinely love others. If we're going to be renewed and have a new perspective on life, it's going to change the way we love others. Authenticity versus manipulation. He says we don't love hypocritically. Say one thing, do another. Gameplay. Manipulate others to fulfill our own needs under the disguise of love. The reality is we're all hypocrites. We all are. Genuine love for others is often elusive. It's hideous. It's like a cancer in the church of Jesus Christ. He reserves his most severe words to hypocrites. We seem to prefer this lifestyle to truth and authenticity. But listen how he describes genuine love. It hates evil and it clings to what is good in verse 9. It hates evil. We ought to hate evil. You know why? Because what it does to people... Evil destroys people. Sin destroys people that God loves. We ought to hate evil in the effects of what it does in the lives of people. I love that he says cling to what is good. Hold on to what is good. And by the way, folks, God defines what is good, not us. We don't become the definers of what truth is and what is good. God becomes the definer. His ways are always best, but His ways are often not necessarily the way that the other kingdom looks at things. It only makes sense when we understand God, understand His ways. Cling to what is good and right. Now it gets more difficult. Never pay back evil for evil. Verse 17. Verse 19, never seek revenge. Never seek evil for evil. Never pay back. Never seek revenge. If you are hurt, and we're going to be deeply hurt, Christ said we're going to be hurt, we're going to experience great injustice that's going to be done to us as the people of faith. And when injustice is done, we want to strike out. We want to strike back. When we're hurt, we want to strike back. 
This passage from the Old Testament says, leave that to God. The vengeance is mine, he says, I will repay. For us, we don't repay. Because we want to be free from the prison house of revenge. How about this one? This gets even more deep. Genuine love cares for our enemies. Genuine love cares for our enemies. Oh, come on, God. What are you calling us to do? Bless them. A blessing to the people that we despise. The people that have different perspectives on in in our life that we despise. We're called to bless them. Extend God's blessing to them. Stand, folks. As we close. One clarification that's helpful to me as you wrestle with the the idea of loving enemies and you think of the Old Testament and what God did. There's a difference between God's judgment on nations, which He chooses to do, and the teaching on the Old Testament interpersonally how we relate to each other. And the call for that is to love our enemies, bless them in a very special way. God, companion of the lowly, He's the binder of the wounds. He's a seeker of lost souls. He's a friend of the poor. He's the source of all that is, forgiver of sins. He's the voice of the voiceless, counselor of the confused, shelter from the storm, creator of heaven and earth. And we in our ways worship and adore him. And you go in those words this morning. Amen.